Hello and welcome to the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast, the second edition. This is your host, Scott, the anesthesia resident. All right, thanks for tuning in to episode 16 of the Super High Yield Anesthesia Podcast. And uh, today we'll be talking about anesthesia considerations for C-sections, emergent OB hysterectomies, and repair of a uterine rupture. As uh, with previous uh, anesthesia consideration episodes for uh, specific procedures, my main source for this one is going to be Jaffe's Anesthesiologist Manual for Surgical Procedures, particularly the fifth edition. All right, like the previous episodes of this, we're going to first talk about, briefly talk about the surgical considerations, and then we're going to move on to anesthesia considerations, the pre-op stuff, uh, to intra-op, and lastly, post-op. Okay, so with all that said, let's go ahead and get started. So first of all, surgical considerations for C-sections, essentially if there's like a failure to progress in labor, or for example, if there's fetal distress or malpresentation, so things like your breech delivery that basically cannot do vaginal delivery, then that's when you can do a C-section. Or if the patient has a had a C-section previously, you're going to have an elective repeat C-section. Okay, and uh, indications for emergent OB hysterectomy, things like refuse bleeding that is not controlled, and obviously things like uh, for indications for repair of urine rupture is rupturing is bad, so you have to you have to repair it, right? So. Uh, those are the main indications for this particular surgery. The position that the patient will be in is usually it's going to be supine, and you can have them on a little bit left lateral tilt to avoid an aortal caval compression. The incisions for C-sections generally, most commonly, is the low transverse incision, which is basically like below the, it's like a horizontal incision, like uh, below the, the belly button. But the classical C-section is pretty much a vertical incision uh, down the middle, okay? So generally, the, some unique considerations for these procedures is if the patient has fetal distress, they're going to have continuous monitoring of the fetal heart rate, heart tones uh, until skin incision. Regarding antibiotics for these cases, generally speaking, you can use uh, uh, cefazolin or ANSEF 2 grams. If the patient has a premature uh, rupture of membranes, you're going to be adding azithromycin on top of the ANSAF. General surgical time for C-sections is between 20 to 90 minutes. EBL for these cases actually could be very high. So 750 to 2000 cc's for C-sections, though patients could tolerate about like one liter of blood loss usually. So that's if you have upwards to like 900 cc's to one liters of blood loss, then it's not that bad. It's okay. But obviously, patient to patient, it's going to be different. So that's uh, the surgical considerations, like the main ones that we have to be worried about. Next, let's talk about the anesthesia stuff. So first of all, we're going to do pre-op kind of system-based considerations. So first is the respiratory system and um, regarding pregnancy changes to in the respiratory system, you have increased minute ventilation. So it's going to be kind of normal for these patients to have a component of respiratory alkalosis. So PCO2 is going to be between 32 to 34-ish. And lastly, you can have a decreased FRC and increased oxygen consumption. And this is kind of scary for us because if they, they 
de- start decompensating, they're going to decompensate very fast because they have like zero reserve, not zero, but very low. Okay. Next is the thing that I'm always scared about is the air, uh, the pregnant airway. Um, for pregnant patients, the airway is going to be smaller and a lot more edematous. So it's going to be more difficult to intubate a patient that's pregnant versus a non-pregnant one. And generally speaking, you're going to be using a smaller ET tube size than you normally would. Our default in my institution is going to be a 6.5 tube, just in case the airway is very edematous and we can't pass a, a bigger tube through. And uh, because of this, you can be careful when you're trying to suction the patient because you don't want to make the edema worse. Okay, uh, so that's respiratory. Next is cardiovascular. And for these patients, it's normal for uh, pregnant patients to have increased plasma volume as well as increased cardiac output. And the high yield point to know is that cardiac output is the greatest immediately postpartum in the entire pregnancy. So of all three trimesters, the greatest cardiac output is going to be right after they deliver. And the reason for this is basically once baby's out, the placenta, the blood that was in the placenta is about 600 to 800 cc's. And that's going to enter the, the central circulation and it's going to pretty much increase the preload and increase the cardiac output that way. So that's something to be aware of. And another thing for cardiovascular is pregnant patients tend to have a decreased SVR, decreased diastolic pressures as well as MAP, especially if they have uh, aortal cable compression, which can be alleviated with a left lateral tilt. Okay, next system is the hematologic system. Thing to know about this is there's an increased red cell mass as well as increased plasma volume and blood volume. So... Something to to know, uh, there's different situations in which there can be increased blood loss. So things like uterine adeny, multiple gestation, previous C-section, placenta previa, placental abruption, and prolonged labor. Okay, Uh, that's hematologic. Next is GI system. Think to know that there's going to be increased intragastric pressure in these uh, pregnant patients, mainly because the, the baby is kind of pushing up on the stomach. So then it's going to try to push the stomach contents upwards. You're also going to have a decreased esophageal sphincter tone due to progesterone. It kind of affects uh, the lower esophageal sphincter uh, especially. And one thing to note is during labor, like not before, these pregnant patients will have decreased gastric motility as well. So all of these factors put together makes you very, 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 very concerned for aspiration risk. So basically, if you're going to intubate a patient that's pregnant, you're going to treat them as if it's a full stomach. And before that, you're going to give a non-particulate antacid, so sodium citrate, or the brand name is Bicitra. In addition to that, you're going to give famotidine, brand name is Pepsid, and as well as some metoclopramide, brand name is Reglan, to kind of help with gastric motility. Next system, hepatic. Generally speaking, you're going to have a mild elevation of T's and ALKFOS. And, and generally, it's it's from the placenta. But if you have like a lot severe elevation, then that's when you can be concerned for possible preeclampsia uh, with severe features. But that's a topic for another time. And lastly, there's going to be a decreased plasma concentration, which is going to increase the unbound drug levels. Next, renal. 
And basically, there's going to be increased renal blood flow, as well as GFR, as well as creatinine clearance. And it's normal to see a decreased serum creatinine, as well as a BUN. Labs you want to get preoperatively. You definitely, definitely, definitely want to get a type and screen at the very least. And uh, it's always a good idea to prepare the blood products, have it available in case you need it for these procedures. Because again, C-sections, they bleed or could bleed uh, quite a bit. And having things like uh, coagulation studies and platelet counts is going to be excellent for us, not only in terms of managing a hemorrhage, but also knowing where or not we can do neuroaxial techniques. Regarding uh, pre-medication, you technically could give some uh, midazolam or Versed if their patient is extremely anxious, but generally you can try to avoid that if you can. And again, we kind of talked about the medications for aspiration. So the sodium citrate, Reglan, or sorry, uh, metoclopramide, as well as famotidine or pepsin. So here's the fun part. This is the intraoperative considerations for C-sections and the emergency hysterectomies and uh, the repair of uterine rupture. So the for these patients, because of all the issues that's associated with pregnant patients' airway, we want to try to do neuroaxial if possible. Because again, airway could be difficult. You have increased risk for aspiration. So neuroaxial is going to be our best friend for these procedures. So again, advantages of using neuroaxial techniques is uh, there's uh, actually decreased maternal mortality rate. There's a decreased risk for aspiration. The mother is able to participate in childbirth. And essentially, uh, if you use a spinal, it's going to help with pain control as well. So if you listen to our my previous episode, episode 15, regarding the different uh, analgesic techniques, you kind of are familiar with the different types already. So epidural, spinal, and combined uh, spinal epidurals, uh, CSCs. Kind of fly through this a little bit. So epidurals, basically... When you're going to, if you want to use an epidural for for the patient, for example, uh, when they first come in, they need some labor analgesia, and then basically the steps for this, you can have monitors in place, you have post-ox, blood pressure cycling frequently, you're going to position the patient, usually they're going to be sitting for this procedure, you locate the space, usually using the iliac crest, you find L4, and you go right above that, so you're between the L3 and L4 space, and you're going to use the TUI needle 17-18 gauge with using the loss of resistance technique, whether it is saline, air, or a combination of both. And once you get to the right spot, you can do the testos or whatever your institution wants you to do and look for any intravascular or intradecal signs. So intravascular signs are things like tachycardia, palpitations, dizziness, tinnitus, or tinnitus. Intradecal signs are things like motor block and super rapid onset of pain relief. Now, here's the interesting thing. If the patient already has the epidural and then you have to come back for an emergent C-section, you could convert the epidural for the C-section. And what you want to do is basically use preservative-free lidocaine. Usually, uh, you can use lidocaine 2%, and then you add a little bit of bicarb to it. And by increasing the alkalinity of the, the local anesthetic, you're going to have a faster action faster rate of action, faster onset of action. So at my institution, what we usually do is 18 cc's of 2% lidocaine preservative-free plus 2 cc's of bicarb. So you have a 20 cc uh, stick and you just bolus 5 cc's at a time or 
less if the patient is very short and small. And then you're going to be constantly uh, checking the levels, just making sure it doesn't pass uh, T4 because you uh, you don't want a, a high spinal. And then in addition to using the, this lidocaine solution, you could actually push either fentanyl or some uh, morphine through the epidural as well. And uh, if that doesn't work, you can even use some nitrous oxide, like 50% uh, nitrous with oxygen, or you can even use uh, IV ketamine to kind of help with the pain. But if none of those things work, then the last resort is going to be converting to general anesthesia. Okay. And again, uh, like we discussed earlier, you're going to have left uterine displacement to kind of avoid the uh, aortal caval compression. And right after delivery, you're going to have the uh, rapid infusion of oxytocin, generally 10 to 20 units per hour. Okay, so uh, that's if you had the epidural in place. But most times, especially if it's like an ambulatory uh, C-section or like a scheduled C-section, you have time to uh, do a spinal. And it provides a pretty good pain relief for after the procedure. The major contraindications that you're doing a spinal is one, patient refusal. Two is coagulopathy. Three is active neurological disease. Four is elevated ICP. Five is hypovolemia. And six is infection at the site of insertion. The pros of using a spinal is basically it's a lower risk for, for headaches. So it's as low as a 0.5 to 2%, especially if you're using the pencil point needles. So things like the, the Whitaker needles or the uh, Sprott, Sprotty needles. Some find it easier to place in the epidural. It has a rapid onset that's good for doing uh, C-sections. And lastly, it's a pretty reliable anesthetic technique. Cons of using a spinal is the possible uh, sympathectomy, uh, having a decreased blood pressure. So one thing you can do to kind of mitigate this drop in blood pressure is having a fluid bolus. So you can either do a preload which means that you're giving the fluids before you do the procedure, do the spinal, or you give the, the fluids as you're doing it, so co-loading. So essentially at this point, it's there's really no difference between co-loading and preloading. So it's kind of just whatever preference you want to do. Okay, and lastly, um, one thing you're going to be using after you're placing the spinal is vasopressors, especially phenylephrine. Historically, the vasopressor of choice was actually ephedrine because they thought that there's uh, improved circulation for both mom and uh, the fetus. But recent, recently, uh, presser of choice is actually going to be phenylephrine. And, it's, and this is the presser of choice because it has rapid onset. It effectively treats any decrease in SVR. It has limited placental transfer. And one thing that's a downside for ephedrine is that it could actually increase fetal acidosis. And the thought behind this is basically um, when you have ephedrine, it's, as you know, it's an indirect sympathomimetic, right? So it releases a bunch of catecholamines. The fetus metabolism is going to be increased. And by having more metabolic, increase in metabolic rate, you're going to make more waste products and that's going to cause the acidosis. So that's why, where, so at least that's one reason why uh, phenylephrine is the vasopressor of choice for pregnant patients nowadays. And if you're interested, um, I found this review article that kind of details this, and I'll uh, leave the link in the show notes. Okay. And lastly, if the phenylephrine doesn't work, you can 
consider using other vasopressors, things like levofed or norepinephrine or even uh, epinephrine, okay? Steps for doing the spinal, basically the same thing, no, similar as doing uh, an epidural. So having the monitors on, you have the fluids on, you have the anti-emetics uh, prior to the block, and you're doing the spinal with the pencil point needle. And the, the main difference is you're gonna use an introducer needle for the spinal, and you're gonna be puncturing the, the dura. And the, the recipe generally for spinals is you're gonna use uh, bupivacaine, uh, 0.75%. The dose is usually 11.25 to 12 milligrams, which is kind of translates to 1.5 to 1.6 cc's. You can use duramorph of it, like 0.1 to 0.2 milligrams. Uh, fentanyl, 10 to 20 mil or micrograms, or you can substitute fentanyl with Presidex, usually uh, 4 micrograms. Okay, and the high yield board thing to know about this is you want to have the the block going up to T4. So you're after the spinal, uh, you started your vasopressors, patients lying down, put on monitors, and you do the testing, and your goal is going to be T4. Not any higher, though. Higher is bad. Okay? Lastly, uh, for neuroaxial techniques is CSE. As we kind of talked about in a previous episode, uh, it's best of both worlds, and the steps to do it is pretty much the same thing as the epidural and spinal. Okay, so there are times where you cannot... Uh, use neuroaxial techniques, then you're going to have to do general anesthesia. So indications for this, uh, things like there's if there's some sort of hard contraindication to regional, there's not a time to do a block, there's like severe maternal hemorrhage, there's a prolapsed umbilical cord or severe fetal bradycardia, severe persistent fetal deceleration, or the need for uterine manipulation. So basically, GA is used when excrement is really hitting the fan <laughs> and you have to do um, the surgery like very quickly. So regarding induction, first thing you want to do is elevate the right hip. So basically the left uterine displacement to avoid aortal cable compression. You can pre-oxygenate as well as you can, and you're going to do rapid sequence intubation with cricoid pressure. Generally, we use uh, propofol, two to three mix per kilo, with succinylcholine, 1 to 1.5 milligrams per kilo. But depending on the patient, you can use other induction agents like ketamine or tomidate. So as we kind of discussed, like patient, pregnant patients are potentially disastrous airways. So you have to know what you're going to do if you fail to intubate. So generally, we don't even mess around with DL. We kind of just go straight to GlideScope. But if that doesn't work, as long as you're able to mass uh, ventilate the patient, just keep doing that while you figure out another another method. Definitely avoid numerous attempts at intubation because the airway is already edematous and if you continuously manipulate it, it's going to get worse. Definitely call for help. And if you're not able to mask ventilate the patient, shove in an LMA and hopefully that works and continue the procedure. Uh, or if you have the LMA that's compatible to pass an ET tube, definitely try that. But lastly, if the LMA does not work, you're going to try transtracheal ventilation or an emergency crike. So that's induction. Next is maintenance. You could use nitrous 50% with a volatile anesthetic. Generally, you want to try to keep the MAC less than 1.5, mainly to prevent uterine anony. You can actually use propofol drip to kind of uh, negate the uterine relaxation effect of the gas. 
but you have to be careful that when you're using it because it, it could cause neonatal depression. Okay, other things to consider for maintenance is to avoid hypocapnia because this will decrease the umbilical blood flow. And then after delivery, a non-depolarizing muscle relaxant is rarely needed. But if you do need it, you can use rocaronium. Generally, you can reverse it whatever you want. So Neo plus uh, Glyco, or you can use Gamadex. But uh, if you do use Gamadex, mention to mom that there's uh, effects on birth control, as in it would make the birth control less effective. All right, and uh, lastly, regarding pain, you can uh, consider doing a tap lock or some sort of opioid. Regarding emergence, you definitely want to have an awake into extubation, just making sure that they're able to protect their airway. Because again, pregnant uh, airways are going to be very difficult. Regarding blood and fluids, as we kind of mentioned earlier, this could be moderate blood loss. You can expect to lose up to 700 to 1,000 cc's in a given case, and that's normal. Ideally, you can have two uh, working IVs, and ideally you can have at least an 18 gauge. Regarding monitoring, if it's a normal patient, you can have standard monitoring with fetal heart rate. But if the patient's uh, crit- critical, then having an A-line is great to closely monitor the blood pressure, especially if the patient's preeclamptic. Or and having a central venous pressure mon- monitoring would be beneficial for other indications like uh, pulmonary hypertension. Okay, next last things, uh, positioning. Again, left urine displacement to avoid aortic cable compression. And lastly, complications. Although relatively rare, one of the things you look out for or be aware of is the amniotic fluid embolism. The interesting thing about this is not it's not an actual physical embolus. It's basically more of like an anaphylaxis reaction from the contact of amniotic fluid to maternal circulation. And the way it presents is generally hemodynamic instability, hypoxemia, and DIC. And treatment for this, uh, unfortunately, is no like silver bullet. It's just going to be support. Okay. Lastly, uh, post-operative complication or post-operative concerns uh, for regarding complications, a venous thrombosis is possible for these procedures. But the thing that you're kind of worried about the most is postpartum hemorrhage. So again, it's very important to have the patient type and screen and have blood available for every C-section you, you go to. And we'll kind of talk about, about postpartum hemorrhage in the next episode or in a future episode. Okay, guys, that is it for this episode. Thank you very much for sticking in with me. As I mentioned in the previous episode, we have a lot of uh, OB episodes coming up. So I hope uh, you kind of uh, stick around to, to listen some more. And if you haven't done so already, I would appreciate it you take the pre and or post surveys uh, for this episode, just so I know if you're learning anything and if there's any suggestions that uh, you have in improving this show. Okay, for the fun fact I have for you today is from Bino.com. And it's basically the dot over a lowercase i and j actually has a name to it. Apparently, it's called a tittle which is a noun meaning a tiny amount or part of something. So yes, very fun fact. All right, thank you so much again for tuning in. Uh, This is Scott, the anesthesia resident, and I look forward to seeing you in the next episode.